Last week, uh, we saw how the early church responded to attempts to silence the gospel with increased boldness. But it's important to realise that uh, while the church was increasingly bold in Jerusalem, it wasn't necessarily spreading out from Jerusalem with the good news. Instead, God needed to send more opposition, more persecution to scatter the church. And he did this uh, with Saul, who he later had big plans for. Actually, he always had big plans for Saul. So let's pick up the history just after the disciple Stephen has been executed for his faith and Jerusalem has become a dangerous place for the believers. So that's Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 4. And next week we'll continue the second half of Acts 8. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone, from the least to the greatest, often spoke of him as the Great One, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptised. Then Simon himself believed and was baptised. He began following Philip wherever he went and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, for they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given When the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you've said 
won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. So before we get into the meat of this passage, it's important to remember or to recognise where we are in Luke's account of the development of the church, right? Remember in Acts 1, Jesus returned to heaven, commissioning the disciples to build the church. Everyone remember that? And he gave them a pattern for the future. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that's Pentecost, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now in chapter 8, we see the transition from that first geographic and ethnic location, Jerusalem and Judea, through the second one, Samaria, and ultimately onto the third, the rest of the world, after chapter 8. Chapter 8, rather, starts in Jerusalem, with the church being scattered by Saul's persecution. This is verse 1. Uh, <clears throat> Saul was one of the witnesses of Stephen's death and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen and a great wave of persecution began that day sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And after chapter 8, Luke's attention turns permanently to the apostle of the Gentiles, Paul. So chapter 8 is this transitionary period in Samaria. Now question, do you think the apostles planned this dispersion? Was this a planned dispersion? Doesn't seem like it, does it? Yeah, yeah. The apostles were probably so impressed with their boldness, they were just like pushing into that boldness and, you know, we're getting really bold here in Jerusalem, really really hitting it, really doing a great job here, so why should we, you know, worry about any other places? But God realised that he needed to hurry them along. To be honest, like, I never planned to be a pastor leading a church. It wasn't one of my life goals. I didn't have it in my five-year plan or my ten-year plan or any plan. All I wanted to do was to use the gifts that God gave me to serve him in whatever way was the best. In fact, the reality is that none of us who were here at the beginning of Renew set out to plant a new church, did we? We didn't say, hey, let's leave and plant a new church and let's call it Renew. That's not how it happened, is it? Like the scattered disciples, we were forced into this situation by persecution of a kind in a way. Fortunately, we didn't have a Saul trying to kill us, so it wasn't that bad. You may have the idea that if you started a work for God unintentionally, then it's not really valid. I certainly felt that a little. But let Acts chapter 8 put our mind to rest. The entire church spread throughout the world, not because the apostles created a strategic five-year plan, not because 
Peter was a genuine leader, not because um, uh, they had this vision for the world, but because God used persecution to push them out of the nest. Too often I think we're, I think that we think that we're not ready to do the work God has for us. The reality is that we're never ready. We're never ready for God's work and we're never ready because the work that God has for us is always impossible for us to do on our own. You can never be ready to do the impossible. And God, God's work needs God's spirit working in and with us to accomplish it. So we're never going to be ready to do that on our own. So I'd like us to take encouragement from the early church. So renew. Remember that God's church is not carefully mapped out and strategized and focus grouped. It's led by the spirit in the direction God wants it to go. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So perhaps I should stop there. That's, that's the sermon for the day, right? <laughs> nice, short and sweet. <laughs> but Luke builds chapter 8 around something more than just this persecution and, and the spread of the church. So I guess we'd better see what that is. At the core of chapter 8 is Simon the sorcerer's encounter with the way. Let me say that again. The core of chapter 8 is Simon the Sorcerer's Encounter with the Way. Now, it might be helpful to define two of the words in that sentence to make sure we all understand what that means. The first word is sorcerer. This is actually a form of sorcery that's developed from Simon. Obviously, it's heresy, but there you go. In Luke's original Greek... He says that Simon is a mageon. This, of course, is where we get the word magician from. And I've used the word sorcerer here because, one, it sounds cooler to say Simon the sorcerer, and two, because the nuances of the English word sorcery imply something bad, whereas magic's sort of more neutral. Throughout the Bible, however, the concept of magic or sorcery or whatever it's called is recognised as a genuine power. God's miraculous power is real and the biblical worldview recognises that other supernatural powers are at work in our world as well. And magic is always this power that's distinct from and opposed to God's power. So it would seem that Simon's sorcery has some supernatural I didn't mean to have so many S's there, but that's pretty cool. Simon Sorcery has some supernatural but ungodly source. <laughs> it's lucky we're not getting too many sibilants in the microphone, isn't it? Given the worldview described in the New Testament, we can understand that Simon was working with unclean, evil spirits who wanted to fool the Samaritans into thinking that he was a man of God, perhaps even the Messiah. And the Samaritans were so eager for the Messiah, as we see in the Gospels, that uh, they were willing to believe 
in Simon's unclean power. Which brings us to the second definition. So sorcery, the first definition. Second definition, what is the way that Simon had an encounter with? Well, in the very next chapter of Acts, we find Paul pursuing any who belonged to the way. Uh, and this is, this is what Paul's doing, looking for men and looking for followers of the way. Followers of Jesus, of course, were not yet called Christians. That came later in Antioch. So at this time, the movement was called the way. This is actually an appropriate name for our faith when you think about Jesus' words in John 14, 6. Remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The way, as Jesus explained in this famous saying, is an exclusive one. No one can come to the Father except through him. As we saw last week, the church was very much aware of this is exclusivity. And so we might even say that its name is better pronounced as the way, as in the one and only way, with an emphasis on that definite article. And so now hopefully the reason for this encounter is becoming clear. Simon's previous life was dedicated to a powerful lie a lie that told him and those around him that he had power over creation. As Luke writes, everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. But now Simon encounters the true power of God, the Holy Spirit, through his indwelling presence in Philip, the follower of Jesus. And to his credit, Simon is open to the reality of this power that Philip wields. He recognises that this is genuinely the power of God. This is a greater power than the one he previously had access to. And so Simon believes Philip's message. He's baptised and he, he hangs about with Philip. But then Peter and John arrive and they bring with them an even greater power, the ability to share this power that Philip has. So Simon demonstrates that he has actually misunderstood what he's seeing and experiencing when he offers to buy this power from Peter. Peter's disgusted response shows how horribly Simon has misunderstood. May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. The ESV says, may your silver perish with you. Why does Peter react so strongly? Well, imagine that you have a spouse who's a great cook. Some of us know that experience. Um, and one day you meet someone who's really wowed by your spouse's cooking and so they offer to buy your spouse off you. <laughs> How would you react? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you'd react like Peter, right? <laughs> but Simon's aim is actually even worse than that. The Holy Spirit isn't merely another person. He's God himself. Simon's offered to buy God himself as if God were a tradable com commodity like wheat or cattle or maybe wives in some cultures. 
Remember that the entire record of Acts to this point has emphasised how the Holy Spirit has been the one in the driving seat. You might ask why Peter and John were needed in Samaria to allow the people to receive the Holy Spirit. Is it not most likely that God required the Jewish church to actively participate in releasing the Spirit to the world? Peter and John don't possess any control over the Spirit after all. God is in control. Not Peter, not John, not Philip, not the Jerusalem church and most definitely not Simon the sorcerer. Simon should have been offering his life to God. That's what Philip baptised him into. But instead he's trying to buy God with a handful of metal. Peter is right when he describes Simon's heart. He says, I can see that you're full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. It's easy to judge Simon. Even his response to Peter seems to continue his reluctance to deal with a filthy heart. He says, uh, "May these terrible th- pray for me that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. He still doesn't seem to get that the terrible things are not going to just happen to him. They're a consequence of his rebellious heart. So he shouldn't be praying for these terrible things not to happen to him. He should be praying that his heart is transformed so that these terrible things won't happen to him. But are we any better? Do we try to bargain with God? Do we try to buy him? Do we, do we say, if I give you this, will you give me that? Do we do that? Now, over the years I've learnt, I've learnt that this is not a good way to approach God, um, but I still try to buy things back from God. I might want a few hours to do what I want and not think about what God wants at all, just to, you know, have some God-free time theoretically, as if that was even possible. Or I might want to treat someone in a way contrary to God's directions because it's just too hard to treat them right. But if God is God, every moment of every part of my life should be his. Buying stuff back is is basically buying God's rightful position and responsibility in my life, right? Right? even if it's only for a little while. So in a way, I'm buying God temporarily. I want to have the good stuff that God gives without God's intervention or control. So I'd like us all to think for a minute or so about how we try to either keep control over or buy or sometimes even steal back parts of our lives that are rightfully God's. Think about what we do with that and and think about how it impacts us and God's plans, not just for us, but for the world. So just have a think for a minute or so. Don't talk to anyone about it. Um, This is for you to think about. So it's similar to the question that Graham asked earlier. So you can start there.
That's God calling. (laughs) (laughs) So, did you manage to think of something? Don't tell anyone about it. You don't have to share it. But just, just keep that in mind as we hear the words of Jesus to his followers. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, Jesus said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? The paradox of Christianity is is that the only way to gain what we need is to give up what we want. We must give up our own way, take up our cross, that is, take up a life of sacrifice and follow Jesus. The reason that this is necessary is because it takes God to run a world free from pain and suffering. And we're not God. We don't have his infinite knowledge. We don't have his infinite goodness. We don't have his infinite love. When we take control away from God, when we follow our own way, when we try to buy God... We're guaranteed to cause unimaginable pain and suffering to ourselves and everyone around us. Often that remains hidden, so we're unaware of it, but it still happens. This is not a message that people want to hear. We think God should come with personal preference settings, like everything else in our life. Why doesn't God pay attention to my playlist, to my wish list, to my settings? But God is God. Not only does he know what's best for us, but he wants what's best for us. And every variation that we demand makes things infinitely worse. And so often we blame God for that. So let's not make Simon's mistake and try to fit God into the rest of our lives like a Spotify playlist or a Netflix viewing history. Let's recognise, I'm saying this because the Gen Zers have grown up being able to curate their entire life, uh, but we've always tried to do that as human beings. We've always tried to curate our lives it's just that Gen Zers can do it with their TV and their music. We, we used to have to make a, like a cassette, yeah, a mixtape. That's what, that's what the term is. We used to have to make a mixtape. <clears throat> and this attitude suffuses human culture. We just have the technology to do it better now. It's not like we didn't want to do that. We've always wanted to do that. That's built into the fallen human heart. So let's recognise that it's only under the intimate and loving direction of the Holy Spirit that we can live truly good lives.
lives that are a blessing to those around us and to us as well. So let's pray. Lord, we know that often our hearts are like the hearts of Simon the sorcerer. We are embittered by jealousy and held captive by sin. Set us free, we pray. Help us to recognise your goodness, your love, your righteousness, your truth. Empower us with your Holy Spirit so that we might share your love with the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.